You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, what does the future hold? It's a question we all ponder sometimes. What's going to happen to us, me and my family? What's going to happen to our church or our nation or our world? And you know, we're not alone in having such questions about the future because today as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel, we're going to see that Jesus' disciples had similar questions about the future. And they put their questions to the Lord of history, Jesus Christ. And today as we look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 28, we're going to see Jesus answer. As he begins to preach a lengthy sermon that reveals to his disciples the shape of the future. This morning, as we consider uh, a very disputed and controversial passage, we're going to basically see three points. Uh, First, we're going to see the context for Jesus' sermon about the future. Second, we're going to talk about some various ways that this sermon Jesus preached has been interpreted. And then third, we're going to examine a number of events that Jesus reveals in these verses, which he calls the beginning of the birth pains. And we're going to talk about what he means by that this morning. So again, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 24 as we begin our first point in which we see the context for Jesus' sermon about the future. Over our last several sermons, we looked at one very long scene that took place in the temple in Jerusalem. As Jesus has just won a great debate against the religious elites of first century Judaism. And in this debate, Jesus exposed the wicked hearts of these religious elites. And and so we saw that last week as the debate ended, Jesus pronounced a verdict of condemnation upon his opponents. Because they're guilty of hypocrisy, of misleading their followers. They're guilty of opposing him, God's Messiah, and desiring to murder him. So a horrible fate awaits them. But then Jesus speaks to the crowds who have been deceived by those leaders at the end of chapter 23. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Wasn't just the leaders. Jerusalem wouldn't accept Jesus as the Messiah either. And so Jesus ends his public ministry by announcing that Jerusalem also will fall under condemnation. And here our passage begins, chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. So Jesus now leaves Jerusalem, and his disciples must have been stunned. Just a few days earlier, they thought when Jesus came into Jerusalem and all those people were celebrating, they must have thought, wow, this is going to be easy. He's going to be crowned king right away. But instead, Jerusalem has rejected Jesus, and Jesus has now condemned Jerusalem. So they must have been feeling a lot of uncertainty and tension as they followed Jesus back to their lodgings, which chapter 21 tells us we're outside the city on the Mount of Olives. 
And as Jesus and the disciples go up the Mount of Olives, we read, again back in verse 1, that, when his, that his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now, from the Mount of Olives, you get a really spectacular view of Jerusalem. And 2,000 years ago, if you looked at Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, the most prominent thing you would have seen would be the temple. Josephus, a Jewish historian that was an eyewitness to the temple, describes it like this. He said, The outward face of the temple was covered all over with plates of gold. And at the first rising of the sun, it reflected back a very fiery splendor. And this temple appeared to strangers when they were coming to it at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For those parts of it that were not gilt were exceedingly white. And as Jesus and the disciples look at the temple here at the end of the day, wow, that gold must have been shimmering quite remarkably. And the disciples want Jesus to look at it. Maybe they're hoping that this beautiful scene will soften Jesus' heart towards the city and get him to say some positive things about Jerusalem and the temple. But Jesus is not distracted by the beauty of the temple. He isn't going to backtrack one bit because he isn't deceived by the glitter of gold. He just said in chapter 23, a beautiful building can just be a tomb sheltering decay. And now Jesus says some more things that are going to alarm his disciples still further. Look at verse 2. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That temple brilliantly shining in the sun, that center of the Jewish religion, is going to be totally destroyed. A stunning prophecy that came true 37 years after Jesus spoke these words. Because in the year 70, the Romans besieged Jerusalem, trying to end a lengthy rebellion of the Jews. And there was a brutal siege that lasted for months that culminated with the burning of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the enslavement of 100,000 people, and the massacre of somewhere between half a million to 1.1 million souls. Unlike what we read about in Ezekiel, which was talking about the destruction of the first temple, and the second temple was destroyed, there weren't any survivors. You either went into slavery or you died. Jesus' prophecy came terrifyingly true. And for these disciples who had grown up within Judaism, who had often come to Jerusalem for the Passover or to sacrifice, this would have been calamitous news. It would have sounded to them like the end of the world. And so they want Jesus to tell them some more about this. Verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus is now going to answer their questions with his fifth and final big sermon in this book, consisting of chapters 24 and 25. And this section is known as the Olivet Discourse because it was preached from the Mount of Olives. Now, the Olivet Discourse is one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. And the reason for that is it contains many prophecies. And when we talk about biblical prophecy, there's always going to be debates because there are different schools of thought about how these prophecies should be understood. Now, tragically, these controversies often make Christians want to avoid biblical prophecy, which is a shame because 
A large percentage of the Bible contains material that was prophetic when it was given. And God has willed that these prophecies should remain inscripturated for all time to benefit Christians, to give us confidence about God's sovereignty over the future. So we should study and understand biblical prophecy as well as we can. This is a worthy endeavor. But we've also got to approach prophecy with great humility. I say that because there are many people today who speak as though they have some comprehensive understanding of all matters prophetic. And I think those folks would do well to consider just how wrong the prophecy experts were in the first century when they tried to interpret the prophecies about the Messiah. Right? The Pharisees totally whiffed. This prophecy is easiest to understand when it's fulfilled. Before that, it's a much dicier proposition. So I want to approach today's passage with humility. I'm going to present you the interpretation of this passage I find most persuasive, and I really do think that this is the best interpretation for reasons I'll give, and I'm not going to pull any punches about the views I don't take. But I want you to know that I might be wrong, and I urge you to study these things for yourself and to come to the best conclusions that you can. And I plead with you to always be humble and charitable when you talk about these things with fellow brothers and sisters who may have a different view. So we come now to our second point. How should the Olivet Discourse be interpreted? I don't usually spend much time up here talking about the history of interpretation of our passages, but I am going to do that today because I know that a lot of us have heard many different things over the years about this passage. And to get us all on the same page, I think it's probably best for me to quickly survey the major interpretations and explain why I'm taking the view that I am. Dozens of interpretations of this passage exist. To keep this simple, we will group them into basically three camps. The first camp is called preterism, and the term preterism comes from Latin and means one who is interested in the past. The preterist view says that the Olivet Discourse was a sermon about the future to the disciples, but what was future to them is now past to us. So this view holds that the Olivet Discourse was totally fulfilled in history. Preterists justify this view as follows. Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed. The disciples ask, when will these things be? That is, when will the temple be destroyed? Jesus gives them this discourse as an answer. And since the temple fell in 70, well then, the entire discourse should be understood as describing what took place in 70. This view has some big problems. Because there are things in the Olivet Discourse that do not sound like they were fulfilled in 70. For instance, look at chapter 24, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds. That doesn't sound like anything that's happened in history yet, right? That sounds like the end of history, the return of Christ, the final judgment. The preterist says, well, these are symbolic descriptions of the destruction of the temple. That doesn't work when we compare what we find here to other passages in the New Testament that talk about the end, like 2 Thessalonians 1 or Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay to each person according to what he has done. 
Christ returns with glory, with angels for final judgment. That's not describing the fall of Jerusalem. That's the end. So for these reasons, this course cannot just be about what happened in 70. A second perspective is the futurist view. The futurist view says the Olivet Discourse was a sermon about the future to the main future to us still today. The futurist view says that the Olivet Discourse is all about a seven-year period at the end of history, which is often called the Great Tribulation because of one verse found in Revelation 7. Futurists justify their view as follows. Number one, the word tribulation appears twice in our passage, in Matthew 24, verse 9 and 22. So they say, well, here's the word tribulation. This must be talking about the tribulation at the end. Second, they observe the phrase abomination of desolation occurs in verse 15. Uh, this phrase, abomination of desolation, appears four times in the book of Daniel. Twice it refers to an event that Daniel prophesied, which took place around 170 B.C., when the Jerusalem temple was defiled by an evil king named Antiochus, who defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar to Zeus. Twice, Daniel also seems to use this language to prophesy that this kind of sacrilege will be repeated at the end of history by a figure that we call the Antichrist. Now, Daniel's prophecies about this abomination of desolation at the end of history seem to be picked up by Paul, who in 2 Thessalonians 2 makes a similar prophecy, that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will be revealed so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So when the futurist sees the language of abomination of desolation here in Matthew 24, he begins thinking about these other parts of the Bible, and he concludes that Jesus is talking here about the same events that Daniel and Paul are talking about. So, the futurist says, the whole discourse is about the end only. This view has some big problems as well. First, it is totally contrary to the context of the discourse. In Matthew 24, verse 2, Jesus has just predicted the destruction of the temple. Not some future end times temple, but the same temple the disciples just pointed him out to, or pointed him to in verse 1, saying, look how beautiful it is. And right after Jesus says, that temple you're looking at is going to be destroyed, the disciples ask him, when will these things be? They're asking about the prophecy that he just made, the destruction of the temple they just admired. This is very clear if you look up the parallel passages in Mark 13 and Luke 21. Now, we would reasonably expect that Jesus' answer to the disciples would relate to the question they have just put to him. They've asked him about this temple they were just admiring. Surely he's going to answer them about the same temple. But the futurist view requires Jesus to ignore the question the disciples have actually put to him. And instead, it requires that Jesus shifts subjects and starts talking about some end times temple that the disciples have not asked about and almost certainly would not know about. And Jesus is supposed to be making this shift without ever explaining to his disciples what he's doing. Now the futurist defends this position by looking to the disciples' question in verse 3. They'll say, well, look, the disciples aren't just asking about these things, the destruction of the temple. They also ask about the sign of your coming and the, the end of the age. 
So they'll say, well, the disciples have this understanding that the destruction of their temple is connected to the end of the world. And that's why Jesus launches into this discussion about the end of the world on some temple they don't know about. Frankly, I think this view maligns the character of Christ. Because if this is correct, Jesus is basically misleading the disciples. He knows the disciples are asking him about one thing, one temple, and he answers them by talking about another one, with the result being they wind up being confirmed in their incorrect belief that the destruction of their temple will signal the end of history, when it won't. Friends, Jesus does not mislead his people like that. Again, also, this reading is totally contrary to the character of the whole discourse. In this discourse, Jesus speaks so forthrightly and honestly to his disciples about some really hard things they're going to experience in the future. He's preparing them. He's not hiding the ball. I think these are overwhelming problems for the futurist view. But wait, there's more because there's a one more really big problem with the futurist view. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. If Jesus' discourse is all about the end of history, what are we to make of this statement, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place? If the futurist view is correct, it sounds like Jesus is saying he will return for final judgment within one generation. And that did not happen. Now, to avoid this conclusion, futurists have desperately tried to redefine what Jesus means by this generation. So this generation becomes that generation, the generation that will live to see the end. Or generation doesn't mean generation, it means race. It means the Jewish race or the human race. Friends, this won't work. If for no other reason than that Jesus has used this phrase, this generation, again and again, that was alive during his ministry. In fact, just one chapter earlier, Jesus pronounces judgment by saying, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, if you're taking notes, you can find similar statements in Matthew 11:16 and Matthew 12:41 and 42. Now, this generation must mean the generation alive when Jesus was speaking, and that means the futurist view cannot be correct, or else the Olivet Discourse becomes a false prophecy. So for these reasons, I do not accept the futurist view either. The whole discourse cannot be about the, the Great Tribulation. Instead, I'm going to advance a third view, which has been advanced by many Protestant scholars, which argues that certain parts of the Olivet Discourse are about the end of history, and that other parts touch on the events of the year 70, or in fact just describe the overall course of the church age. My understanding of the disciples' question in verse 3 goes like this. They are astonished that Jesus has just said their temple will be destroyed. They assume that that calamity must signal the end of the world. And they add this assumption that the fall of the temple equals the end of the world. And now Jesus untangles their confusion by giving this discourse. Because the fall of their temple is not a sign of the immediacy of the end. Rather, the fall of the temple is one of many painful events that the disciples will witness and experience which are not signs of the immediacy of the end. And so the point of this discourse is that Jesus is going to distinguish the end from these painful events that would be easy to confuse with the end. To justify this conclusion to you, I want you to look at verses 34 to 36. I think this is the clearest place in this passage where Jesus demonstrates that he is, he is distinguishing between the, event, the end versus these painful events the disciples will experience like the fall of the temple. <laughs> 
In Matthew 24, 34, Jesus speaks about these painful events that include the fall of the temple, and he describes them by using the language of the disciples' question in verse 3, referring to these things. They say, when will these things take place? Jesus answers, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The temple will fall and many other terrible events will begin to happen within a generation of when Jesus spoke these words, within 40 years, and they did. In contrast are the events concerning the end, his second coming, the final judgment. And Jesus speaks of these events using different language. He speaks now of that day. So look at verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Those events cannot be assigned a date. So I understand the Olivet Discourse, and especially verses 4 through 31, to be about Jesus distinguishing between these two sets of events. Painful things, like the fall of the temple, the disciples will see in their lifetimes, versus the end. Now today we're going to look at verses 4 to 28. I have not chosen these verses arbitrarily. Verses 4 through 28 form one structural unit in this discourse. We know that because of a presence, uh, the presence of a rhetorical device called inclusio, which we find throughout the Bible and other ancient literature. See, in the ancient world, when speakers or writers were, were communicating, they would signal the introduction or conclusion of an idea by repetition. And that's what we see here. In verse 4, Jesus speaks about false Christs, and then he repeats this warning about false Christs in verses 23 to 26. And then he explains it further in verses 27 to 28. So that tells us we should read verse 4 through verse 28 as one unit. And that finally now brings us to our third point, in which we're going to look at verses 4 to 28. Let's see these events that Jesus calls the beginning of the birth pains. Events that would begin within a generation of when Jesus spoke. Events the disciples would live to see, which are not signs of the immediacy of the end of the world, but which instead will characterize the church age. Verses 4 through 28 can be divided into three parts. First, Jesus speaks about events that relate to the world at large. What will the world be like within a generation of Jesus preaching this sermon? Number one, it will be characterized by false religious leaders. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered them saying, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Drop to verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. The fact that verses 4 through 28 begin and end by talking about false Christs tell us this will be the predominant feature of the era described in these verses. The entire church age will be filled with false religious leaders. The true gospel, that Jesus is God who has taken on human flesh, who died for our sins, who rose again, that we can be saved only by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone, that will be challenged by various frauds. This certainly began to happen within a generation of Jesus giving this sermon. Josephus describes three false messiahs who were active between the years 40 and 62 and notes that besides this,
for, quote, other deceivers and deluders of the people who under the pretense of divine illumination prevailed on the multitude to act like madmen pretending that God would show them signs of liberty. There were frauds who went to the Jews and said, hey, I'm your Messiah, I know what you really want, let's fight Rome. And this was all a warm-up for what happened a century after Jesus spoke these words. When a man calling himself Bar Kokhba, the son of the star, arose. And he said, I'm the Messiah. And all the Jewish religious leaders acclaimed him. And he led the Jews in another war against Rome, which proved to be just as disastrous as the one in 70. And many were tortured and killed. Jesus isn't just warning about false messiahs within Judaism here. Because he also says there will be leaders who falsely claim, I am he, that claim to be Jesus. Or Mark and Luke record, they will simply say, I am, claiming to be God. This has happened many times over the last two millennia, hasn't it? Mother Ann Lee of the Shakers, Sun Myung Moon, David Koresh, and many others have claimed to be the reincarnation of Christ, or a new incarnation of God. And besides these figures, there have been others who came in Jesus' name, as he predicts, but who stand contrary in Rome, to the prophets in Salt Lake lists on TV, to small-time heretics who periodically pop up in local churches to lead people astray. Friends, false religious leaders are everywhere, and they will be until Jesus returns. What should we do with this truth? Jesus says, do not be led astray, because these false teachers will deceive many, including many inside the church, many who seem to be elect, many who give seemingly credible professions of faith. How do we protect We've got to be wary and not gullible. Friends, if we think that we are immune from deception, remember the warning in First. Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The moment we are in the most danger is when we imagine we are safest. We are immune. Friends, no, we must always be on guard discerning. We need to be Bereans and closely examine what is taught to us. Earlier in Sunday school, Daniel read from, from 2 John. There were some false teachers. They had a slogan, let's go on beyond the gospel. Friends, we don't want to move on from the gospel. We want to stay right where the truth about Jesus and the gospel is. Any teacher that denies the true humanity or deity of Christ or the Trinity or who denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus or who denies the substitutionary death of Jesus or who denies the utter wicked merits God's eternal wrath or who claims that he can unlock a new and better relationship to God for us, or who says he will give us boundless material prosperity, that person must be rejected. And any person who claims to be God or Christ should be avoided. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I found him. Hey, Jesus is here. Come see him with me. Friends, don't go. Don't believe it. When Jesus comes back, you won't need to go looking for him. He isn't going to be reincarnated as a cult leader. You aren't going to find him in a compound somewhere or in a survival camp far from civilization. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. When Jesus comes back, we won't have to go looking for him. Every eye will see him. We'll see you next week. Just like vultures can always find a dead body, everybody will be able to see Jesus. So don't be deceived. Number two, there will be international conflicts. Look at verse six. 
and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. History is filled with wars, right? This kind of thing's always there are rumors about them. There were wars and rumors of wars in the first century, just like today. And I think that's Jesus' point. Beginning in the disciples' lifetimes and continuing until the end of history, there will always be wars and rumors of wars. But notice what Jesus says in verse 6. But the end is not yet. These words are often ignored, but they're so important. I know Christians that get so excited anytime they read the newspapers and they see troop movements in the Middle East and they say, oh, this is it. It's prophecy. Actually, what Jesus says is wars are not a sign of the end. They are just a characteristic of the church age. Number three, there will be natural disasters. Look at verse 7. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Natural disasters have happened all over the globe constantly for years. And within a generation, the disciples would have seen some really big ones. In the years 41 and 42, there was a massive famine throughout the Roman world. In 64, there was a major earthquake near Philadelphia in what is today Turkey. 79, Vesuvius erupted and ruined the Mediterranean region. And such terrible events have continued down to our own time. The church age is filled with terrible events. That shouldn't surprise us. Our world is under the curse because of Adam's sin. And Adam's fallen descendants keep doing evil things. Of course the world suffers. But again, do not mistake false Christs, wars, or natural disasters as signs that the end is immediately going to happen. Because Jesus says all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. I don't know if you've ever given birth or watched someone give birth, but labor takes a while. I think Sarah was in labor like 13 hours. Her first pains weren't saying little Joshua's coming. Well, they were saying it's coming, but not like imminently, right? They're just letting you know the birth is beginning to take place. The first pains are not the worst pains. So I counsel, I adjure you. If you're one of these people that's constantly scanning the headlines for reasons to be excited about the immediate end of the world, listen to what Jesus says here. The events that we are quickest to want to associate with the end, wars and natural disasters, do not indicate the immediacy of the end. They are signaling only that the labor has begun. If our metric is just that bad things are in the headlines, friends, there may still be a long way to go. So do not dedicate yourself to being a prophecy headline hunter. Please redeem the time more wisely by devoting yourself more fully to the things God actually commands in the Bible. Grow in grace and knowledge and love for Christ. Love other people. Evangelize the lost. Serve the church. I promise that will be a much less frustrating and much more profitable thing for you to do. All right, we come now to the second part of verses 4 to 28. Now Jesus talks about events that will directly impact his people. What will happen to the disciples and future generations of disciples beginning in the generation after Jesus preached this sermon? Number one, persecution. Look at verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus addresses this to you. Who is you? Well, he's talking to the disciples, and he's telling them what their futures hold. They will be persecuted. And this happened very quickly after Jesus ascended, right? In Acts 5, the apostles were imprisoned and beaten. In Acts 7, the early church was scattered. In Acts 12, James was murdered. As Jesus says, the disciples were put to tribulation. Now, the futurist sees this word and says, ah, oh, tribulation. This must mean the seven-year period at the end of history. 
Actually, this word simply means suffering. In fact, most of the clearest prophecies that talk about that seven-year period at the end of history don't actually use this word. So we cannot determine whether a passage is about the Great Tribulation or not based on the presence or absence of the word tribulation. Now, Jesus here is simply saying the disciples will suffer. And they did, terribly. Remember, Paul in 2 Corinthians says he was whipped, he was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was deserted, he was in constant danger. All the apostles were tortured. Almost all of them were killed within a generation. And down through the years, how many more disciples of Jesus have been persecuted and killed? There's good evidence that in the last century, more Christians were martyred for their faith than in the previous 19 centuries combined. And notice this doesn't just happen in one country or in places with one culture or one religion. Jesus says here, you will be hated by all nations. And that's true. That's the one thing every culture and government in the world can agree on. Whether it's Islamic or Hindu nationalist or communist or a Western secularist state, they all hate Christ. And that's because there is an intelligence that stands behind them, according to 2 Corinthians 4, which is Satan. He is directing all of this. So there will be persecution. Number two, there will be apostasy. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Many will desert the faith. I think Jesus indicates three sources of apostasy in our passage. First, this comes right after his warning about persecution. There will be people who fall away because they like being called Christian when that means you're in the in crowd, and they don't like it when they actually have to, to have their lives disrupted because of persecution. And they see there's a cost to the faith, they renounce it. Second, there will be false prophets, the false religious workers we talked about earlier. They will deceive many professing Christians into falling away from the real Christ and the real gospel. And third, we're told there will be an increase in lawlessness. Now, evil's nothing new. It's as old as Adam and Eve. And yet there is a sense that evil is growing across history. From the last centuries have shown us an increasing ability to mechanize death and slaughter millions. The last decades have shown us how quickly people can reject what is obvious from nature and embrace the wholesale redefinition of gender and sexuality. Lawlessness is growing. And as it does, the, sum, the, the love of some who previously professed faith grows cold. And being seduced by the false pleasures of sin, they renounce the faith. Friends, the church age is filled with apostasy. From the Galatians, who walked away right after Paul left town, to Damas, who forsook Paul because he loved this present world. And it's still true today. Many people renounce Christ for these reasons. And many of our families have been touched by this. It is tragic. And friends, I've got to tell you, this is all a warm-up to the final great apostasy Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians 2, at the end of the age. Now, what does Jesus want us to know about apostasy here? First, he wants us to know that apostasy shows that someone's prior profession of faith was false. Look at verse 13. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the second time Jesus has said this in this book. Friends, we're either going to believe him or we're not. I fear many of us don't. We need to. True faith perseveres to the end. Hebrews 3.14 says, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now understand, the perseverance of God's people is not something we do uh, like by our own effort. It is due to the work of God in our lives. Philippians 1, Paul says, 
He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. But true faith will persevere to the end. And one way God perseveres us is by giving us warnings in the Bible against falling away. And that's what we have here. Don't fall away. Endure to the end. But second, Jesus wants to warn us that those who become apostate can become our enemies. In verse 10, Jesus speaks of apostates betraying and hating those who they previously called brothers and sisters in the faith, aiding in the persecution that characterizes the church age. I remember when I was in college being horrified to see all of these scholars that were denouncing Christianity, almost all of them at young ages had professed faith in Christ, and they had all fallen away, and they had devoted the rest of their lives to attacking Jesus. But friends, we should expect such things. We will encounter shocking, painful betrayals from those that we love. That is part of what it means to belong to Christ, that we will suffer that. We need to understand that those who renounce the faith show they are lost. We need to evangelize them. We need to stop lying to ourselves. That someone who made a profession of faith years ago and has walked away from it, they do not belong to God, friends. The Bible tells us that. We can, we can argue about it and pretend, or we can read what Jesus says. Friends, we need to endure to the end because that's what true faith does. So the church age will be filled with apostasy. But now there is a positive characteristic of the church age given. Number three, it will also be marked by great evangelism. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The church age will be marked by great evangelism. It was within a generation. The apostles took the gospel to Africa and Europe and Asia, maybe as far as India, in just a few decades. And that has continued into our own time, thanks to the modern missions movement, which has seen almost the whole world evangelized. This has proven true. Now, I want you to see that this is the only statement in our passage which is unambiguously connected to the end. The end's nearness is not related to troop movements or natural disaster. No, the end's approach is most clearly seen in the fact the gospel has gone forth to so much of the world. Now, we don't know when God will say, hey, the whole world has been reached, whether it's going to be when the last one person from the last people group hears the gospel or when there's a Bible translation in every language. We don't know what God's standard is. But friends, we see here an encouragement to evangelize. And not just locally, but to take up foreign missions and to continue to reach those who have never heard the good news. We need to support missionaries, and maybe some of us need to go to far-flung lands and spend our lives proclaiming Christ. There are a few things that you'll spend your life on that are better than that. I know that the time runs late, but I am going to finish this passage today. So we come now to the final ver part of verses 4 through 28. And this is what one commentator has called the sharpest of the birth pains. And now Jesus finally returns to the subject that launched this discourse, the destruction of the temple. He says, look at verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Jesus says a time is coming when those who are in Jerusalem and even in Judea, the region around it, need to flee. And he says there's going to be a sign that makes it clear when it's time to go. And when you see it, you just go. If you're lounging on your roof, like many people did back then. He says, run across the housetops. Don't go downstairs. 
If you're in the field and you, you hear about it, just run. Don't go back to the city. Jesus says, pray that it doesn't happen during the Sabbath when you wouldn't be able to buy supplies for your flight or in the, in the winter when the rains would wash out the roads. Okay, but what is this sign Jesus is talking about? Why will this frantic escape be necessary? Well, Jesus says the sign is the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And he says that the reader of Daniel will understand what he's talking about. Now, we've said that Daniel uses this phrase to describe sacrileges that desecrated the temple. Twice a sacrilege that happened around 170 BC, and twice a sacrilege that will happen at the end. What does Jesus have in view here? I've already argued Jesus is not talking about a future temple or the tribulation era or the future desolation, desecrations of Antichrist. Because if that is what Jesus is talking about here, he never answers the disciples' question. When is, the, when is our temple going to get destroyed? No, he's got to be talking about that event in 70. And so it seems that Jesus here is anticipating that the temple will be defiled by yet another sacrilege, one that had not been previously predicted, one that will take place shortly before it is destroyed. Now this view is confirmed when we consider the parallel passage in Luke chapter 21, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's a clear reference to what happened in 70. So Jesus says the temple will be desecrated right before it's destroyed. Did that happen? Yes. In the year 68, a group of anti-Roman Jewish terrorists called the Zealots seized the temple in Jerusalem. They deposed the true high priest and installed their own false high priest over the temple named Phanius, who tried to perform sacrificial rites on the altar that most Jews in Jerusalem interpreted as a sacrilege. Josephus records that after this took place, there was an uprising against the Zealots and their false high priest, just like ha what happened when Antiochus did the first abomination of desolation in 170 BC. And the result of this was there was a battle in the temple itself, and many people were murdered in the temple, which was seen as a defilement of the holy place. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. And what's very interesting is that many first century Christians did too. Because two early church historians, Epiphanius and Eusebius, record that in the same year when the zealots took the temple, the Christians all left Jerusalem and went to the hilly areas across the Jordan River. They understood that Jesus' prophecy was speaking to their situation, and they acted in faith and obedience, and they lived. But for those who remained, the worst horrors imaginable befell them. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, the word for always introduces an explanation in the New Testament. So this is why people should flee. Because if you don't flee, you will face great tribulation, Jesus says. Now, again, the futurist says, ah, great tribulation, we're talking about the end, right? Uh, especially because Jesus here says the suffering is going to be unparalleled throughout human history. I'm not persuaded. First, I'm not persuaded because, as I've already pointed out, tribulation just means suffering. Its presence in this passage does not require this passage to talk about the seven years at the end of history for the reasons we've already addressed. 
Second, Jesus says that the suffering for those who remain will be such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. The fact Jesus has to specify that this will not be repeated is very odd if he's talking about the end of history. Because, of course, at the end we wouldn't expect that these kind of terrible things would happen anymore. So I think Jesus is not talking about the end here. I think he is simply saying people should flee to the mountains with great haste because if they remain in Jerusalem, they will endure the worst quantity and intensity of suffering in human history. That may sound like an exaggeration, but I assure you it is not. When the Romans came against Jerusalem, they besieged it for somewhere between five and seven months. During the siege, the Romans built a wall around Jerusalem so that no one could escape. And if you tried to escape, they would crucify you on that wall. That explains why Jesus is so urgent. Go while you can. If you waited until the Romans showed up, it was too late. You had to flee quickly. And those who languished inside the city suffered greatly. Because at a very early point in the siege, two feuding Jewish factions managed to destroy the city's entire food supply. So Josephus records, quote, Of those that perished by famine in the city, the number was prodigious, and the miseries they underwent were unspeakable. For if so much as the shadow of any kind of food did anywhere appear, dearest friends fell a-fighting one with another about it. Their hunger was so intolerable that it obliged them to chew everything, while they gathered such things as the most sordid animals would not touch, and endured to eat them. Nor did they at length abstain from eating their girdles and shoes and the very leather which belonged to their shields. They pulled off and gnawed the very wisps of old hay. I don't have the heart to read to you further as he describes the scenes of mothers butchering their own children and consuming them or people eating their own dung. And of course, this was all preliminary. This was the starters because then the Romans came in and killed everybody. Months and months of misery followed by mass murder. We can see why Jesus says this is suffering unparalleled in world history. Now maybe today we hear this and we are appalled. And, and we've talked about wars and disasters and now this carnage. And we say, where is God? Why would God allow this? Friends, if that is our attitude to the terrible things we've discussed today, we have forgotten why these things take place. Because this is God's judgment. Judgment upon the sin of Adam. It's judgment upon our fallen race. Particularly the fall of Jerusalem was a judgment on those who rejected Christ. Who we will see in chapter 27. Demanded Jesus' death while crying out, His blood be on us and on our children. Friends, as we hear about these horrors of history, it is folly to blame God. God made a good world. It was man's sin that plunged us into the murk of death and disaster. And if we look at these things and say, wow, this just seems so excessive, that shows how out of touch we are with the truth of the wretchedness of our sin, how we have totally failed to grasp in any real and practical way that the wages of sin is death. Friends, we deserve this carnage. We deserve far worse. We deserve suffering in this life, and we deserve to suffer in hell forever. I think there are two responses we can have to this morning's sermon. We can lie to ourselves and say, I don't believe God has anything to do with these, these things. Or we can ask ourselves, if the horrors that we've heard about today are just a foretaste of hell on earth that indicates the magnitude of God's displeasure towards those who reject his son, how much worse must the real hell be, which endures forever? 
But friend, I don't want you to simply see God as some ogre of wrath because there is grace even in our passage. Yes, friends, we have sinned. Yes, our world is ruined. Yes, evil abounds. But I want to tell you today, God is gracious. First, God is gracious because we read in verse 22 that if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. I understand those days to be talking about everything we see in verses 4 through 28, the whole church age. If people are so evil and so desirous of violence that if God didn't intervene in the affairs of our world, everybody would die. But out of God's gracious love for those who belong to him, he will intervene by cutting short the era in which we live. All the things we've talked about today will continue until the end when Christ will return. And we're going to talk about that next week. But God is gracious because he will one day end the nightmare that is history. But second, I, I want to leave you with this. I want you to consider the grace of Jesus. Just as he warned the people of Jerusalem to flee and survive, today he warns us that there is a way to escape the fury which is coming, a fury worse than the horrors of Jerusalem. And like those Christians in the first century, we need to listen to Jesus. And Jesus says to us in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Friends, if we turn from our lives of sin, if we trust Jesus, he will forgive us. He will adopt us into his family. He will bring us safely home into eternal life. We don't deserve any of that. But that is the amazing grace of Christ, that sinful wretches like us can be saved. And we have access to that grace only because Jesus has borne all that wrath that we deserved. See, friends, God is gracious. God is quick to forgive. God is bounteous in goodness and mercy. But make no mistake, if we spurn and reject him, we will suffer his wrath. So this morning, may we seriously reflect upon the kindness and severity of God.